Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed gathered us together, that we might learn from you, that we might learn from your word, or that we would come to understand what it means to be strong in you rather than strong in ourselves. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as has been a constant refrain throughout this series, we've been talking about how we live uh, in the, within a spiritual battle. We're engaged in a spiritual battle, that there are spiritual forces of evil at work in our world. And we talked a lot about that the first uh, weekend in this series. I can't go back and rehash that every single time. Uh, sometimes I wish I could. But, but the point is, we've been reminded that, that our battle isn't against our fellow human beings. Our battle is against something much more sinister and something that often goes unseen. The spiritual forces of evil that seek to divide and to destroy. And throughout this uh, passage and throughout this series that we've been looking at Ephesians 6 and seeing how God has equipped us for that battle. We've been learning how it is that we fight by looking at each one of these pieces of what Paul calls the armor of God. Strange and ancient image, but one that has incredible relevance for us today the more we dive into it. And this weekend, we're going to be looking at one more piece of that armor. We're going to be looking at the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now you see, uh, most scholars believe that the image when it comes to the armor of God that Paul had in mind was the image of a Roman soldier. And that's because when he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, he was, in, he was under house arrest. And when you're under house arrest, you're actually assigned a Roman guard, a Roman soldier to watch over you. And Paul was probably looking at that Roman soldier's arms and his armor and, and, and realizing, you know, God has given us as Christians much better armor. But it inspired him to think about, well, what does that armor actually look like? And, and a Roman soldier's helmet was vitally important when it came to fighting in battles because the head is vital. The head is vital when you fight in a battle. You can uh, sustain a wound to your arms or to your legs and keep on fighting, but to sustain a wound to your head at, at worst will kill you, at best will leave you disoriented. And, and so the Roman helmet was designed to protect the head and the face. That when you put on uh, the, the helmet, uh, you had a couple different parts to it that are important to note. Uh, the first is it kind of had these like cheek guards that would guard, guard the side of your face. Uh, then it had the top, which was rounded, so things got kind of glanced off. And then if you notice, on the back, there's kind of this wide area which would have protected the back of your neck and your shoulders and the front there's almost this visor to keep things from falling in your eyes it was a it was a vitally important piece of armor but one of the things I find so fascinating about this piece of the armor is not what's on the outside but actually what's on the inside because you see the the helmet itself doesn't rest directly on your head Inside, there were these straps of leather so that when you placed the helmet on your head, your head was actually being cushioned by air. That it wasn't resting right against your skull because, again, if you, even if you were wearing a helmet, if you got smashed upside the head, it could leave you dazed and disoriented. It could lead to, to brain trauma. It could knock you out. It could take you out of the battle. And so what they did is they had these leather straps in here to cushion any blow. That when you put this on your head, it was almost like wearing a 
kind of a heavy cloud. That's the best way I can describe it. It was cushioned to prevent you from becoming dazed and disoriented because in a battle, you need to be able to think clearly. You need to be able to think clearly to fight well. And the reason why is because making decisions on the battlefield allows you to adjust no matter what takes place. You see, I, I used to think that when it came to winning battles, it, it really was about numbers and strategy. It's about having more soldiers, and it was about having a better strategy. But the more I, I actually researched and looked into battle tactics, one of the things that most uh, tacticians and generals will let you know is that actually it has nothing to do with numbers and strategy, but it has everything to do with logistics and objectives. Logistics in the sense of making sure that your troops are well supplied, that they have everything that they could possibly need to fight. But then objectives, having... Very extremely clear objectives so that your soldiers know what to do when they're fighting. In fact, uh, the U.S. military has something called the commander's intent. And you'll find the commander's intent at the top of every single set of instructions, battle plans, or strategies that they put together. The commander's intent was a succinct description of what constitutes success for an operation. And the reason why they did this was because... They knew that all your strategies, though they might help you to anticipate what could be coming, ultimately all your strategies fly out the window the moment you meet the enemy. Because nothing goes the way you expect in a battle. Nothing quite goes the way that you plan it. But if your soldiers have a clear objective, it allows them and the commanders on the field to improvise and still succeed. The commander's intent says, at the end of the day, no matter what happens, this is the one thing that we need to do to ensure that we win and are victorious. This is the one hill that we have to hold. This is the one stronghold that we have to take. This is the one place that we need to evacuate civilians to, and so on and so forth. It was this clear statement so that no matter what happened, they could stay focused. They could stay clear. They could know what the commander's intent was and adjust to anything else that might change. And I think this is helpful for when we think about what is the helmet of salvation for us as Christians. Because the helmet of salvation helps us remember our commander's intent. Paul actually talks about this in Romans chapter 12. See, in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul begins with the following words. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Now, just a little tip whenever you're reading the Bible. Whenever you come across the word therefore, your question should be, what is the therefore, therefore? It reminds you that whatever he's about to say is said in light of everything that was said before. And what he's saying is he's saying, like, in light of everything that I've said right before this. And what did he say before this? Well, Romans 1 to 11 is Paul's long discussion about the salvation that we have in God. That's all that Romans 1 through 11 is all about. It, it, it reminds us that we have been saved by God's grace as a gift. And he says, now, therefore, in light of that, in light of the salvation you have, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. But then notice what he says next. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says you need to be clear on your commander's intent. And when you understand salvation, 
you know what that intent is. You know that God's desire is to bring salvation to the entire world. That's his one goal. That's his one objective. That is what we are called to pursue. And it's important not to forget that because we are in this spiritual battle, one that takes place in our very souls. Paul actually talks about it earlier in the book of Ephesians. He says that we were taught with regard to our former way of life to put off our old self, which is being corrupted by its evil desires and to be made new in the attitude of our minds. To put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. He says, look, when you get confused about your commander's intent, what we end up doing is we default back to our old ways of thinking and living. We default back to our old ways of thinking and living. And I think that this is part of the reason why Christians so often get distracted and end up in fights and pursuing causes that have nothing to do with what Jesus would have us do. It's because we're picking up the world's weapons and fighting according to the world's rules. And we've forgotten what that one objective is. The encouragement here when it comes to putting on the helmet of salvation is to once more remember the focus that God had, the salvation of the world. And when that happens, it reshapes how we think about everything. In fact, I'm cognizant of the fact that this past week uh, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And one of the things that most people often forget about Dr. King is that uh, we always think of him as a civil rights leader. But Dr. King himself thought of himself first and foremost as a Christian minister. You see, he was a Baptist pastor. And he would say over and over again, that's, that's my primary calling. I am a pastor. I am a Christian leader. That's my duty. That's my job. And he took what he knew and believed about the gospel and was trying to apply it to our current circumstances, to the current things that we're facing us as people. And there's a one sermon that he wrote that was a beautiful sermon. He called it Paul's Letter to the Church in America. And here's what he said. He said, through your scientific genius... You have made the world a neighborhood, but you have failed to employ your moral and spiritual genius to make of it a brotherhood. He goes on and says the following, So America, the atomic bomb that you have to fear today is not merely that deadly weapon that can be dropped from an airplane on the heads of millions of people, but that atomic bomb that lies in the hearts of men and women, capable of exploding into the most staggering hate and the most devastating selfishness. Dr. King says, we need to renew our minds. They need to be transformed by the reality of God's salvation because until they are, we will continue to see our enemy as the human beings who are right next to us. And we will end up fighting the wrong battles with the wrong kinds of weapons. We need to get crystal clear on our commander's intent. Because one of the things that's so fascinating about what Paul talks about in Romans 12 is after he calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, the rest of chapter 12 and the rest of chapter 13 is all about relationships. It's all about relationships. The very next thing that he talks about is how do we humbly serve each other? 
within the family of Christ? How do we serve ourselves in the same, uh, serve one another in the same sacrificial way that Jesus has served us? Then he goes on, he talks about our enemies. He says, what about those people who persecuted you? Well, we pray for those people. We bless them. We find ways to serve them and live in harmony with them. We put their needs above our own. We love our enemies. And then he goes on to talk about even the governing authorities, those who are in leadership above us, our politicians, and and those uh, who have political power and political authority. And he talks about how we're called to serve and obey them as well. You see what he says is he says, when you understand that God's desire is to save all people, that shapes, reshapes how you relate to them. You no longer see them as enemies. You realize that I'm not supposed to, that we are not supposed to be storming Capitol buildings. We're supposed to be storming the gates of hell. We're supposed to be emptying it of its prisoners. Because the people around us, the ones who disagree with us politically, the ones who are of different racial or ethnic backgrounds than us, those of different socioeconomic status and so on and so forth, those are not our enemies, nor are they our opponents. They are the reason that Jesus came here. They are human beings made in his image whom he loves and he came to save. That is our calling. That is our commander's intent. That's what it means to have the salvation, the helmet of salvation on our heads. It's to have salvation at the forefront of our thinking because it reshapes how we interact with every single person. And in a world that's constantly being divided by people saying that our enemies are over there, our enemies are over there, our enemies are over there, the message that we have here is, no, the enemy, the true enemy, is the one who would divide and destroy all of us. And in order to overthrow him, the salvation of Jesus has to be at the forefront of our thinking. It will transform how we interact with other people. From one of hostility and vengeance to one of gentleness and love and mercy. It's not a contest of strength. But one in which we are seeking to outdo each other in service. That is our calling when salvation is the forefront of our mind. And that is what reflects the mind of Jesus. One of the things that I love when I look through the Gospels and I I hear Jesus preaching and teaching, he's always talking about his father's will, always. Over and over and over again, when people are like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? He's like, I'm doing it because this is what my father wants me to do. I'm about my father's business. In fact, one of my favorite moments uh, when he's explaining his purpose is in John chapter six. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For it is my father's will that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus understood that his one purpose, his one aim, his one goal was to save as many people as possible. And that's to be our focus as well. It's to realize that our God has not come to destroy, but to heal and to make new. That our God has not come to judge, but to forgive. That our God does not come in anger, but in love and in gentleness. That's what it means to take up the helmet of salvation. 
One of the things that I find so interesting is, again, it, it's, it's one of those things that's just kind of harder for us to translate into English. When we read that passage, it's often translated, take the helmet of salvation. But what it really means in the Greek is it means receive the helmet of salvation. Because the way that we give salvation to others is by first receiving it from God himself. It's a gift that he gives to us. It reminds us that not only did Jesus come for those we're called to reach, he came for you. He came for me. That though the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus says, no, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That when we were warring against him, he laid down his life for us. That when we turned our backs on him, he chased us down. That when we would pick up stones to kill him, he embraced us in his love. Lived for us. He died for us. He rose again for us. And he says, and that salvation is yours. And that is what we are called to give. That's who we're called to be. People who wear the helmet of salvation who recognize that that's the gift we're called to give to everyone around us, and it reframes every relationship, every encounter, every conversation, every interaction. For our heads are guarded by the good news that Jesus Christ is a God who saves, and out of his love flows forgiveness, mercy, grace, and new life. So receive it. Receive the gift of salvation. and Carry it forward into a world that so desperately needs to hear that good news. And so with that in mind, I actually want us to respond to that gift by giving praise to God and prayer. I want to invite you to please stand with me. We're going to be doing our prayers a little bit differently this morning. Rather than speaking them, we're going to sing them. We're going to sing a hymn together which reminds us that we are indeed saved by God's grace. A hymn in which it really is a prayer asking God to renew our minds, to refresh us from the inside out so that we can be a people who go into battle with the gift of salvation to give. And so would you sing with us as we lift our prayers before God?